Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray. I'm the president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership, or VDP. And today, we're delighted to have an opportunity to talk with one of the leaders in manufacturing in the United States, Jay Timmons, president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers, or the NAM. Jay, great pleasure to meet you. One of the things I've noticed in observing D.C. area activities is how many Virginians have gone on to take on national leadership roles, and you're certainly in that great tradition. There's so many folks that will be listening to this that are interested in manufacturing because they're interested in the future of economic development. It's a huge part still of our economy, a growing part of our economy right now, not just in output, but happily in jobs as well. Jay, tell us about what the NAM does and what first drew you to the NAM about 15 years ago. Yeah, about 14 years, and I've been in this role for a little over eight. But, you know, being able to advocate on behalf not just of of manufacturers, but really on behalf of what makes America exceptional. We talk a lot about the four pillars of an exceptional America. That's free enterprise and competitiveness, individual liberty, equal opportunity. Manufacturers embody all of those pillars. And we have such a rich history in the development of this nation, of building the economy of this nation, and also lifting people up all across this country. It's just a wonderful industry to be associated with. And you're right, Virginia is oftentimes leading the way as well when it comes to manufacturing investment and economic development. Not to veer off track, but one of the things we were chatting about before we got started was that you were chief of staff for Governor Allen who was literally responsible for the creation (laughs) of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Can you talk about that a little bit, like what really drove to the creation of VDP and what was your great aspiration for it and how well has that played out? Well, I think, you know, George Allen Mm -hmm. always wanted to make sure that if you know anything about George Allen, you know that the man is competitive beyond belief. And he wanted Virginia, still does, want Virginia to succeed. He always wanted Virginia to be number one in every single category. But at the top of that list was job creation and opportunities for Virginians. Oftentimes over the course of several years before he came into office, economic development, job creation tended to be a bit of a political football. And he wanted to take politics out of investment and job creation. So the creation of the partnership was one of the key initiatives that he had during his campaign and one of the first things that he focused on when he was elected governor. Well, congratulations. It's, it's obviously had a big impact over time. As I was telling you before we started, one of the things that really drew me to Virginia in this job leading VDP was the structure uh, that you all put in place, I guess, about 20 years ago now. So, so it's over 20, yes. Great, a great almost achievement. Almost 25, I guess. A great achievement. I also noted, uh, looking back at past governors, Governor Allen was had one of the most successful administrations in terms of jobs created and announced during his tenure. It's a great time of growth in Virginia. Well, it was his priority, and every governor has various priorities, and I certainly understand and respect that. And I know that that many other governors, including the current governor, have been instrumental in attracting investment and jobs to the state. But for George Allen, it was always at the top of the list of his time. He would meet with his cabinet. He called us his competitiveness cabinet, and he expected every single one of us every day to focus on investment and job creation. And he said, if you ever find yourself someday thinking about something else, stop it. <laughs> he really wanted to make sure that Virginia was, was leading the pack economically. 
Well, and that legacy has really given us a lot of great things. You know, Silicon with, Dominion and... You know, and last year, uh, the Commonwealth was really excited and privileged to win the Amazon HQ2 project. That was an and amazing one of the things achievement that, for you guys. Well, it was a great achievement, but in line with that, one of the things that I talked about with our partners and with the General Assembly was, you know, it was an achievement that in some ways happened in, I guess, 2018, but it really was decades in the making. Because really, we had this great product to sell the Governor Allen and other governors before and after him really helped to create in terms of the business climate, the bond rating, the incredible higher education institutions, the public schools, the infrastructure, all the things that leaders of Virginia have helped create over time really put us in a position to be competitive for that. I don't think that can be undersold. I think it is absolutely amazing when you look at Virginia's competitive advantage in all of those areas. And I work with all 50 states, so I can't show favorites, but I do think the other 49 understand that I have some allegiance to Virginia because I was involved in it for so many years. I think the best thing that Virginia has going for it, in addition to all of those things, Stephen, is the quality of the people. The drive and the spirit of the people of Virginia is truly unrivaled. And every community, every part of the state has its own identity, its own culture, and every single one of them are just attractive places to be. It's a special place, for it sure. Is. There's no question. Looking at manufacturing in the United States, it is one of the dominant drivers of the U.S. economy. One of the things I think that the NAM has helped to do is to tell the story that it's not just about all the great direct manufacturing jobs. But when you really consider the, the indirect effects, the induced effects, the, the impact on so many other industries across the economy, manufacturing really is responsible for roughly a third of the entire U.S. economy when you consider all those other effects. At the same time, a lot of people don't get that. They don't realize how important manufacturing is to the U.S. economy, to our competitiveness, to our growth as a country and to opportunity in the country. What do you think that we can do to better get the word out about the importance of manufacturing to the U.S. And, and the importance of being competitive for manufacturing investment, not just at the federal level, but in states and in localities as well. The way you lined that question up, I think, is really important to look at you know, data. Everybody looks at data. Everybody looks at numbers. And when you're looking at manufacturing and you realize it's not just one of the most important factors in driving an economy. It's really the most important factor of any economy, any country in the world. So in the United States, for every dollar that's invested in manufacturing, $1.81 of spin-off economic activity occurs. That is the highest multiplier effect of any sector of the economy in the United States. For every job that's created in manufacturing, another four to five jobs, to your point, are created in other sectors of the economy. So the tangential effects of, of manufacturing investment and job creation are enormous in this country. It allows us to grow our economy. It allows us to grow our tax base so that we have more resources for those things that we want to fund through the public. It creates a, a better sense of community. It, it creates investment in communities to improve the quality of life in those communities. So manufacturing really is woven into the fabric of our nation. But I think your real question here, and, and it's a question I hear all the time, is why don't people take manufacturing more seriously? You know, I, I've heard so many people say, in fact, even when I was looking at taking this job, I had people saying, oh, manufacturing's dying. You don't want to go there. You want to go into technology. Well, guess what? Technology is manufacturing. Manufacturing is technology. They are fused together. So I think that the story of modern manufacturing is not told particularly well. People think of your grandfather's manufacturing. My grandfather worked at the Mead paper mill in Chillicothe, Ohio, 
And the manufacturing of those days is not the manufacturing of today. Manufacturing today is very modern, it's very sleek. You think in terms of new inventions, new creations, think in terms of pharmaceuticals, think in terms of, of better health care and medical devices, that's all manufacturing. Think about the transportation of the future, that is all manufacturing. If you wanna talk about powering a city or a state or a nation, and you wanna think about traditional types of powering our energy needs versus the future, of how we're going to power our energy needs. That's all manufacturing. So manufacturing today is really all about the future. I think when we tell that story to young people, they get pretty excited about the possibilities. And one of my jobs here is to help recruit more young people into manufacturing because we have almost a half a million jobs today that are open because we don't have folks with the right skills. And that number is gonna to grow to 2.4 million in the next 10 years. So Deloitte we have to tell study, it. if I'm not mistaken. A Deloitte right? study, yeah. that's right, with our Manufacturing Institute. I've been in this economic development space for quite some time, I guess about 15 or 20 years or so. In the process of that, I've had an opportunity to visit with hundreds, probably thousands of manufacturers over time, as have, have, have you. At the same time, I've visited with many, many other types of employers across the country. And I've observed this really interesting phenomenon that's, that's happening in the U.S. right now. We have almost a third of our full-time employed adults with a bachelor's degree or higher are not in college-level jobs, an increasing number of them struggling to pay off their debt. At the same time, both in good times and bad, we often have manufacturers struggling to fill these skilled trades positions that often pay really, really well. We really can't have a conversation about manufacturing without talking about the skills gap as well. I'd be right. curious about your thoughts about that and what you think we could do better, both in states and localities in the country, to better you know, align what our educational institutions are doing with the needs of the workplace. We have a huge misalignment in terms of our educational uh, products and the needs of manufacturers. The Virginia Manufacturers Association, that's our state affiliate in Virginia, Brett Vassey runs that. This is a major focus for them as well, and we, we really appreciate our partnership with them in that regard. I will say that community colleges, technical schools, are very adept at moving their curriculum forward and working with local employers to discuss kind of what the needs are. I do not think our, and I, you know, I have three kids, two of them right now are in elementary school, another was going to be in elementary school in a few years. We don't adapt as well or as quickly, perhaps, in primary and secondary education, and I think our four-year institutions have a hard time making course corrections as quickly as perhaps we need them in the economy. That's not to say they're not willing. I have a tremendous affinity for our system of higher education in Virginia. I think it's Frankly, I think it's probably the best in the country. Again, a little bit of a bias there. And I'm very proud of our primary and secondary education systems. Governors have put a lot of effort into making sure that our standards of learning are right for today and tomorrow. That was another focus of Governor Allen when he was in office. But there's just something missing. I was really excited the other day. I went to a, a school fair at our elementary school, and it was all about digital innovation and there was a lot of STEM skills on display there. And I got really, as you might guess, I got really excited to see this, you know, second and third graders actually, actually getting involved in, in some basic STEM skills. And I mentioned it to the principal and I mentioned it to the teacher that was responsible for it. And they both were like, that's great. This is, you know, we're just trying this for the first time. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's great, but 
it shouldn't be the first time. We need to be doing this every single year and really infusing this into our curriculum. It really is remarkable what's happening in Virginia in education. As the head of EDP, I sit on our state higher education board, and one of the things that really impressed me shortly after I started was learning that not just that Virginia's goal is to be the number one most educated state in the country, but that the way we're going to measure that goal is not just by what percentage of our population has a bachelor's degree or higher, but really what percentage have some kind of post-secondary work-relevant credential or higher, including certificates, including associate degrees, including a whole range of technical programs, you know, machinists, welding, and, and other things that are badly needed um, you know, by our manufacturers. So we know we're doing a lot of things well, but we're trying to put a little bit more focus on those areas in Virginia, as are I know many other states. Look, I think that's exactly the right way to approach it. I work on the Workforce Council at the White House. The Trump administration is very focused on credentials. They're very focused on apprenticeships and ensuring that we, we kind of eliminate that mismatch of skills versus training and certification. I think the previous administration, the Obama administration, had a focus on that as well. They were... I actually went with President Obama to the Northern Virginia Community College where we actually talked about how community colleges can respond to those needs of the future. I wasn't as thrilled a week later when he had a different message and said that <laughs> in order to succeed, everybody needs a four-year degree. I don't, <laughs> right, right. I don't think that that's the case. I think that, right. I think that you know, certainly some jobs in the economy and, and even some jobs in manufacturing need that four-year or even an advanced degree. But there are a tremendous number of jobs that you might need a few years of technical training or community college or a high school degree may be enough. And we're talking about average salaries, average now, of over $80,000. And depending on whether you go to college or not, you may not even have any college debt with that. So manufacturing jobs are not only very attractive for the money, but they're also attractive because of the innovation and the things that you get to do in those jobs. You're helping to create the future. They're exciting, and they can be a career of a lifetime. When you look, Jay, at this skills gap issue, obviously you travel a lot. You've seen what a lot of different states are doing. Are there any states that, and this is not a trick question, by the way, but genuinely curious, are there any states that you see doing things that are making a difference or at least going in the right direction to make a difference relative to closing that skills gap for manufacturers? Ohio, they lead the pack. Wisconsin is incredibly good at it as well. Pennsylvania. So, so a lot of the states that you think of as a traditional manufacturing state, they have a culture that, that yeah. well, I'm not sure they had a culture or they saw, they saw things slipping away, mm. right? So they wanted, to, they wanted to catch up with the Virginias that were beginning to attract some of these jobs. You see some of this in southern states where there's a lot of investment in manufacturing now, but where I see the intense focus and the intense investment really is kind of in the, in the heartland, the Midwest of the United States. It's powerful. And we, we do have some of our communities in Virginia. I think you're probably familiar with the Danville area and the amazing Absolutely, things that yeah. they're doing with precision machining and so forth. One of the most interesting things that I've heard from many manufacturers about talent, uh, when we talk about sort of globalization and where they choose to make things, we often think of China or other lower cost countries as sort of taking U.S. jobs because of low cost, and that's certainly been part of what's happened. But the other part that's been really interesting is that over time, some of these shifts are less about low cost, but literally just the sheer availability of that technical workforce being greater in some other places. So it's something that we're trying to put more attention on in Virginia. And I think in general, the country, we could argue, I think needs to have a little bit more of a balanced focus in terms of post-secondary education 
often people think, well, if everybody needs to go to college, everybody needs a bachelor's degree, right? But the real workforce needs are a little bit more balanced, you know, with more sub-baccalaureate and bachelor's together. I would agree with that. I, I think on your your China point and the point of investment outside of the United States, a lot of that over the course of the last, let's just say, 20 years has been a result of an imbalance in tax policy and regulatory policy. Policy does matter. So over the last 18 months, manufacturers have argued successfully for a more competitive tax policy, one where we were not below average or even just average, we're above average now. We argued for regulatory certainty. We've been given both of those things by this administration. Now, manufacturers have an obligation, in my mind, we made promises that if we got those things, we were going to invest in the United States, we were going to hire more American workers, we were going to raise wages and benefits, we've done all of those things. And we would make sure that the air was cleaner, the water was cleaner, the environment was healthier. That's on us, and and we're delivering. I'm really proud of manufacturers for doing that. You know, over the course of the last two years, we've had the best job creation in manufacturing than we've seen in a long time. You compare that to 2016, when there was actually a decrease in manufacturing jobs. And in the last two years, we've created almost a half a million jobs in manufacturing. Now, as we talked about earlier, we can't fill all of those (laughs) because we don't have necessarily the folks with the right skills uh, or we can't find them. But it's obviously a lot of great opportunity for manufacturers and I think for Americans because of the right policies. Yeah, I mean, certainly to me, I, I know having competed for many projects with global companies that were thinking about both domestic options and international options, we would often hear of concerns about U.S. corporate income tax policy. Right. Right. And I do think those the recent changes are going to be really meaningful in that respect. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over time. Before we leave that question of the skills gap, Jay, as you talk to a company, obviously many manufacturers on your board, other folks you interact with around the country, are there particular occupations that come up frequently or types of skill sets that the top ones or among the top ones that you hear about? I've tried to drill down on that, no pun intended, to find out exactly what it is folks are looking for. And what we get back oftentimes is it's a whole range. You definitely will find a need for technicians, electrical, industrial maintenance, industrial maintenance, and certainly welders. You mentioned that machinists, but I don't think it should be lost that the fact that manufacturing includes a lot of other jobs that might not be considered in folks' minds traditional manufacturing jobs. You think of HR and marketing and accounting. We struggle to find folks for those jobs too. So it really is across the board in all levels of manufacturing. Those technical jobs though, those seem to be the toughest because we we have that misalignment right now in our educational needs. Certainly when I've talked to manufacturers, overwhelmingly it's the sub-baccalaureate kind of skilled trades a little bit of engineering in some cases, a little bit of those other occupations, but those skilled positions seems to be the dominant thing that folks struggle with. Yep, no question about it. And some of that has to do with the way that we fund our educational institutions. I don't know if you guys have ever looked at this, but the community colleges, if you're running a community college, it's a really low cost to deliver you know, an undergrad English course or something like that, to deliver welding is a much, much higher cost proposition. Same thing for machinists, same thing for a whole range of these other skill positions. So one of the things we're looking at is how can we better sort of reflect the actual cost to deliver these programs and the way that we fund community colleges so that they can be more responsive to the market without taking a hit financially for doing so. Well, and look, I, just to be very blunt about it, 
manufacturers have a responsibility too. I mean, it's one thing to say we need more CNC machinists, but if we're not helping some of these community college or technical schools actually purchase some machinery to be able to have the students learn on the job, or perhaps bring them in as apprentices to our operations so they can learn and earn at the same time, get college credit for what they're doing at work. I mean, those are the types of constructive programs or thinking outside the box that you're starting to see more and more manufacturers take on and work with community colleges on. Do you see, considering the policy reforms that have been helpful that have been made recently, is the sort of skills gap kind of the top of the list at this point, or are there other things that would supersede that? It's been at the top of the list, and you mentioned even during downtimes. During the Great Recession, it was always in the top three, which was fascinating to me. Um, but it, it is definitely at the top of the list now. I would probably put concerns about trade as number mm. two. Um, and it, it really depends on where you trade. So if you think in terms of North America, uh, it's vital for manufacturers that the USMCA gets ratified and ratified soon. Uncertainty of any type is a concern for any business, as you well know, for manufacturers who have to make investment decisions months, even years in advance. It can be, can be detrimental. It can hold back a lot of investment and job creation, and we don't want to see that happen. If you look at China, uh, we talked a little bit about China and a lot of investment that occurred there. But China's big problem is, and we're pleased that the administration has gotten the attention of the Chinese government, China's big problem is they steal. Intellectual property, basically. Well, a lot. Yeah, they steal our intellectual property. They force localization. I mean, they cheat. And so it's not the way we do business. It's not the way a market economy does business. And we called two years ago, almost, we called for a bilateral, rules-based, enforceable trade agreement with China. It's kind of interesting to see the reaction among the business associations in town. They kind of rolled their eyes and say, well, that's a bridge too far. <laughs> well, I'm pretty happy to say that we're seeing that bridge be built. And if all goes well, we'll see a ribbon cutting pretty soon, I hope, with some sort of a new, some sort of set of rules of the, of the road, or, or in our mind, the best thing would be an agreement, a trade agreement that can be ratified. Then you look at Europe and you've got some imbalances there. I, I don't see that as dire, perhaps, as the administration sees it. Yes, we have some issues, but I think we could work those out with some good conversations. I worry about a lack of perhaps attention or even respect for the World Trade Organization. The World Trade Organization was developed after, after World War II to try to set a system in place to encourage trade around the world. For us, that's a win-win. 95% of the customers in this world live outside of the borders of the United States. We may be the biggest market, but there's still a whole lot out there, and there's a whole lot of customers we want to sell our stuff to. WTO helps us do that, so we're hoping that there'll be a focus on some reforms at WTO that, that can strengthen that organization as well. It's extremely important. I should add, topics. by the way, yeah, when we talked about trade. I, yeah. I should add infrastructure is, is huge as well. We have called for a significant investment in infrastructure. We put out a proposal called Building to Win. It's almost almost three years ago now. It calls for over a trillion dollars of spending, and it does what a lot of other proposals don't do. It provides a lot of options as far as user fees that, that should be considered to actually pay for the needs that we have. And, and you well know that trillion dollars is only about half of the need out there. We've got a lot of needs in this country, and we're way far behind our competitors. And they are they're using that, just like you would use in Virginia, 
other countries are using their systems, their infrastructure, their ports, their highways, their, their airports as incentives to attract investment and jobs to their shores. Indeed. Why would we not do that here? I mean, you would do that in Virginia to the extent that you can and you have. I know some of those projects. <laughs> but we really have a national need and we need to... I couldn't agree with you more. I, I've never been more concerned about the future economic competitiveness of the United States than I was in my first trade mission to China several years ago. And I was just stunned by the level of infrastructure investment in highways and train systems and airports. It was way beyond anything I've seen right. anywhere in the United States, not just in the U.S. in general. And now through amazing. the Belt and Road Initiative, they're not only doing that in China, but they're strategically investing in other parts of the world to pull heretofore you know, capitalistic free market economies into a different system, the Chinese system. We can't afford to let that happen. We've got to show our leadership. We've got to show it here at home. We have to show it around the world so that the system that we've built and that the world has based their economic system on doesn't fall apart. Let's shift gears just a little bit. You know, we've talked a lot about federal policy. We've talked about the skills gap. But sort of beyond the skills gap, as you think about economic competitiveness for manufacturing at the level of states, what are some of the things that, that you see from the NAM perspective that state leaders really should be doing to not only support their existing manufacturing base, but to be competitive for future manufacturing investment? Well, tax, you know, tax laws are always very important. Uh, the tax code of, of any state, to the extent that localities are involved, that's, that's extraordinarily important. The regulatory environment is important as well. Certainty is critical. Making sure that those who invest in the state understand what the rules of the road are in the state. There's nothing that is more disruptive to investment and job creation than having a sense of uncertainty. I think that that can be done and should be done on a bipartisan basis. A lot of times there are partisan wars over, over environmental regulations or, or infrastructure projects or labor rules. It makes sense to me that the parties get together under the umbrella of economic development to figure out what's best for the state for, for the future. I would throw in something else that I know is controversial, but I, I think it is absolutely vital to who we are as a country. I would like to see states speaking up about the importance of the immigrant community on their success as a state, their communities, and their workforce. If we have 500,000 jobs open in manufacturing, we have 7 million jobs open economy-wide, we have more jobs open today than we have Americans looking for jobs. That to me is an economic imperative. So we do need reforms in our immigration system, there's no doubt about that. We definitely need strengthened and hardened uh, national security, or pardon me, border security measures. But we really need to refocus our immigration program on the economic needs of this country. And there has to be a humanitarian component as well, because that's who we are as a country. That's who we are, the soul of our country is about that. So I think that manufacturers in particular have a special role in leading a discussion on immigration reform. We put out a proposal called A Way Forward, and it takes on all of these issues, the economic imperative, the national security imperative, the humanitarian imperative, and we think it's a workable program. In fact, we've, we've gotten some indication that folks in the White House and folks in Congress are looking at it for ideas on, on how to move this discussion forward. And we're optimistic that there will be some, some movement there because we can't continue this divisive discussion that we're having in this country.
So immigration is important, not just for filling some of the workforce need that we have, but really diversity and inclusion overall. We have found, manufacturers find, that the more diverse the workplace, the more productive we are, the more successful we are. That's why the National Association of Manufacturers has been advocating for the Equality Act in Congress. We believe that it's important that everybody is afforded the same opportunity and ensure that equal opportunity, equal opportunity under the law, is paramount. These are very, very important issues for the future of manufacturing. I can't let our interview conclude without asking you a question that I've, I've been dying to ask you. So in economic development, we often hear the term, quote, advanced manufacturing thrown around. But everybody seems to mean different things or to have sort of a very vague notion of that. I'm just curious, as you think about it from an NAM perspective, if I say advanced manufacturing, is there, in fact, a way to describe that, or is it more of kind of a loose term that's out there? Well, the way I would describe it is if you survive the recession, <laughs> you're, you're advanced. in advanced manufacturing by <laughs> definition. And I really truly mean that because you were forced to be as competitive as you possibly could right. be. Now, how do you do that? You do that by an infusion of technology. So whether that's robotics or artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality, all of those, and certainly base levels of technology, that helped manufacturers survive that recession, be more competitive, be more efficient, be more productive. Today, with manufacturing, you hear the euphemism, manufacturing 4.0, or the internet of things. And I said at the beginning of this interview, technology and manufacturing are literally one. You cannot have, you cannot have manufacturing, successful manufacturing, without a massive amount of technology infused in it. What you will hear is you'll hear people saying that somehow technology is going to be the end of the manufacturing worker, that <laughs> robotics are going to take over. And that is patently untrue. The reason for that is because, as you can see, we've been infusing a lot of technology into the manufacturing processes, time. but we're growing in terms of the number of jobs that we're creating in this country. Well, why is that? It's not that jobs are being replaced. It's that jobs are changing. And it goes right back to that conversation about the needs the, the educational needs that we need for the workers of the future and also to retrain existing workers today. So as the manufacturing workplace changes, the workplace of the future, if you will, we have to upskill our workers so that they're future-proofed, so that they can withstand all of these changes in technology and that they can help us design and build and maintain the robotics and the technological advances that allow us to be competitive in manufacturing and as a nation. Which really speaks to the great promise of manufacturing as a great place for careers, for mobility, and the potential that if we can really do a better job of meeting the needs of the, the skill needs of companies, of manufacturers, that we can create more economic opportunity, more growth for people across the country. You know, this whole issue of Virginia Economic Review is all about the future of manufacturing in the United States and what states can do to position themselves to successfully retain the firms that they have and to attract more manufacturing investment in the future. I guess the last question I, I would pose to you, Jay, is as you see the next five to 10 years, I realize there's no way to sort of pull out the crystal ball, but what are the big trends that you see happening over the next five to 10 years in, in manufacturing? You know, if you'd asked me that five years ago, I couldn't have predicted. What, what we're seeing today. I had the opportunity to go with, to uh, Hanover, Germany. It's the Hanover Messe, and it's the largest manufacturing trade show that there is. It's 37 buildings that are the size of three to four football fields, and it's mile after mile of new technologies, emerging technologies, new systems, 
I was there actually a few years ago and just happened to run into Governor Terry McAuliffe. So, you know, Virginia obviously is interested in figuring out what others are doing as well. It was fascinating to me what I was seeing. And I think what the trends you're going to see, you're going to see more digitization for sure. You're going to see the importance of data more than ever. Robotics are going to become more and more important to the production process. But from a trend perspective, you're going to need higher and higher skills for manufacturing workers. It's why we pay more than any other sector of the economy on average. And it's why we have this workforce skills gap and need for more training of our workers. One thing we haven't talked about yet, Jay, is energy. Having worked with many manufacturers, it's a very, very common challenge for them. It's very often a large input cost, if you will. What are some of the big issues right now from an energy perspective relative to manufacturing? Yeah, well, you're exactly right. Manufacturers use one-third of the nation's energy output. I mean, you think about that. That's a tremendous amount of energy that we consume. And so the cost of energy does matter if we're going to be competitive as a, as a country. Ten years ago, actually... Yeah, about 10, 12 years ago, if you think about what natural gas was doing to our industry, it was crippling us. You saw massive exodus, if you will, of chemical companies that have a high dependence on natural gas input leaving the country. And I saw both sides of this in yeah, Louisiana, by the way. I'm the sure you did. Right. And yeah. so now today with directional drilling and hydrofracking, you have very low cost input when it comes to natural gas. That's allowing us to bring those companies back to our shores and a lot of that investment back to our shores. It's one of the big drivers of FDI since 2008. Absolutely. It absolutely is. But manufacturers care about all types of energy. So the larger the mix of energy, the better the, the ability to, to contain the cost uh, of energy. It allows us to shift from one source to another. So that's why we have a concern with saying tomorrow we want to shut down coal. There may be some environmental reasons that we want to take a look at, at doing that over time, but we really need a bridge to the future. Natural gas is clearly one of those bridges. I would argue that nuclear energy is also one of those bridges, but for whatever reason, we've decided, I mean, we all know that there are scare tactics and nimbyism that tend to make nuclear power investment not particularly a good investment. But I really do think the federal government needs to focus on that. We need to focus on expanding all types of energy production so that we are the most competitive we can be as a country. It's going to be an exciting period of time to watch the development of manufacturing in the United States. Well, I have to say, I studied mechanical engineering in undergrad. I love manufacturing. How I love different visiting. is it today than when you studied, <laughs> It's a right? lot different than it was <laughs> back then. But one of the great joys of my work, and I suspect of yours, is getting to visit uh, many, many different kinds of manufacturers. One of the great things about the Commonwealth of Virginia is the incredible diversity of manufacturers in our state, from microchips to aerospace to robotics to food and beverage manufacturing to Volvo and everything in between. You've been able to see that up close. You've been a great champion for our manufacturing industry nationwide for many years. So appreciate you being one of our first folks to interview for Virginia Economic Review and looking forward to getting your feedback on this next issue that's all about uh, the future of manufacturing in the United States. Well, I appreciate that, Stephen. And uh, I also appreciate the great partnership we have with the Virginia Manufacturers Association and the great work of the Virginia Chamber of Commerce. The government can do a lot, but it's the private sector that really drives you know, the progress. And we're so happy to have those groups out there advocating for Virginia. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for being with us today. 
This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.